When you make a financial decision, do you stop and think about the impact that decision has on your future lifestyle? Our guest tells us that physicians may be the only obstacle between themselves and becoming a physician millionaire. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to an awesome show with an even more awesome guest. My friend, Sarah Falah, is back on the show. She's a returning guest from the episode called Six Proven Behaviors That Increase Wealth. If you liked that show, wait until you hear this one. All the dots will connect, and I'm pretty sure you're going to thank me later for it. If you haven't heard that show, you absolutely need to go back and listen to it. It's almost as epic as this episode is. In the show with Sarah, we talk about how little behavior shifts can have any physician living the millionaire lifestyle. Seriously, all the pointers Sarah gives us is based on data acquired from her company Data Points and her research from co-writing that 1996 bestseller, The Millionaire Next Door with her dad and its successor edition, The Next Millionaire Next Door, that tells you becoming a millionaire is really all about mindset. Sarah goes into detail about what millionaires look like today, what their habits are, how they ignore the status quo in spending, and how you can fall in line with all those unique qualities propelling you into the lifestyle you dream of. Now let's talk to Sarah. You guys are going to love this. So let's jump right in. Sarah, I'm so excited and thrilled to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am glad to be here. Of course. So clearly this isn't the Dave Ramsey show. We have a <laughs> little bit lower following than Mr. Ramsey, but welcome and so excited. I think what we should do is to start off, I think it's really important to start off by describing in your research, what have you found that the average millionaire looks like today? Yeah, you know, it's funny when we think about average, it's oftentimes we're talking about median, right? So mm-hmm. what's kind of the midpoint in terms of all the dollars when we think about income and things like that. So for most you know, millionaires that we've studied, their median income the year before, so the year before they took the survey, was $250,000 a year. But their median net worth was $3.5 million. So hmm. you know, clearly they are taking advantage of that, typically you know, much higher than average income compared to other Americans. Most of them have a college degree, so that actually increased from 1996, for example. So that's increased over time. And many of them have graduate-level degrees as well. You know, they're a satisfied group. They've worked hard. They continue to work hard. You see that reflected. They cite working hard and discipline as the things that allow them to become successful. You know, they're satisfied with their life and they're satisfied with how things are going for them financially, but also with their life in general, you know, and they're not big spenders. So I laugh at some of my friends who wear jeans that cost more than my daughter's braces, but they don't buy fancy things. That's sort of a consistent finding over time. So they spend about, you know, on average, they haven't spent more than $50 on a pair of jeans, for example. 
And that kind of is what they look like today. And it's in some ways very similar to what it looked like 20 plus years ago as well. Mm -hmm. And you're referencing 1996 because that's when the book, The Millionaire Next Door came out and your book just came out, The Next Millionaire Next Door. And so when we do these comparisons, just for people to know, that's kind of what we're referencing. Sarah, when we look back at what millionaires were in 1996 to what they are now, did any of their key habits or traits or behaviors change at all in the research? Yeah, so there were a few things that changed over time. Certainly how much they spend for their homes has changed. Even adjusting for inflation, that's changed quite a bit. So we see them spending more for their homes now than they did maybe 20 years ago. We also see an increased emphasis on education where there's a higher percentage of them obtaining a bachelor's degree and then also a graduate level degree as well. That's changed over the last 20 years. Hmm. And I know you haven't made it till you have some haters, right? And I know that some of the people like that were kind of hating on the original book were saying that this only happened because of the economy or because of the president or some other excuse. Did that affect anything now that we've had like two major essentially recessions? Yeah, that's funny that you bring that up. You know, a lot of people want to blame it on something external to them or Mm -hmm. external to people that became successful. What we found, the same behaviors, as you and I have talked about before, that allow someone to be really good at transforming their income into wealth, those things haven't changed over time. And so we don't see, you know, regardless of costs that have increased, like education, healthcare, things like that, if you're still able to be confident in your decisions and live a lifestyle that allows you to make good spending and saving decisions, you're still going to be financially successful in the long term. Mm -hmm. And speaking of external factors, you know, understanding how those around you influence your financial decisions or behaviors. I know that I talked with Nick True on a previous episode, if you want to go back and listen to it, everyone's the science behind positive financial habits. But Sarah, can you kind of go into more about how others will actually influence your behaviors? I'll bring up this example because I think it probably makes a lot of sense for the folks that listen to your podcast. When I first started working, I had my PhD in industrial psychology. I went and worked for a technology firm here in Atlanta. And I wanted to sort of, or I didn't realize this, that I was doing it consciously, but I found myself looking back now really trying to emulate those that were maybe more successful than I was, maybe had you know a better title than I did at the time, leaders within the organization, looking at what they drove and the kinds of parties or things that they did outside of work. And looking back on it, I can see that there were so many influences that I wasn't even aware of at the time. And I think particularly for physicians, those that are sort of surrounding themselves with similar people in a similar career, It's really easy to be influenced by what they're doing, even if, for example, the people that you're working with aren't really wealthy, but yet they look like they are because they're Mm -hmm. driving a car that's expensive or they're living in a great neighborhood, that kind of thing. And so those influences are always there, certainly. But now, of course, with technology, they are ever-present. You can see what your neighbors and friends are doing, and, and that becomes an even harder kind of hurdle to get over in order to make good financial decisions. Mm-hmm. And so if we look at that, it kind of brings back this question that I've, I've wanted to ask you for a while is technology and how that affects 
our wealth or the accumulation of wealth, right? So we've got mm-hmm. robo advisors now, we've got budgeting apps, you know, we've got just social media in general. I know we've chatted offline a bunch about just how social media is always showing you, you know, what you're missing out on or this is what you yep. need to buy. I mean, marketing now is just amazing with Facebook pixels and Google ads and knowing all this data about us, the pros and cons of technology, I guess, and how these influence your behaviors. What do you essentially see or what is the research kind of shown in terms of how technology has affected our wealth or accumulation? The first thing about that, of course, is, you know, there's a reason that we're all glued to our phones all the time. And that's because they're shiny. They're showing us new things. They're showing us notifications. You know, there's a there's a psychological reason that we you know gravitate towards these technologies. But like you mentioned, there's a lot of positive things that can come from them as well. You have so many options now for, you know, managing tasks or, you know, your life related to your finances and things like that. Social media is an awesome way to keep in touch with friends and family. But I think just like anything else, too much can be a real negative influence over the kinds of financial decisions that you're making. I mean, we know that there are influences or rather there's research out there already that shows that there are buying decisions that are based off of what you're seeing on social media, particularly for teens. But now they're studying that in adults. So we know that there's an influence there. I think they're just beginning to scratch the surface of what that really looks like. Yeah, I'm a little terrified for like my kids growing up. Absolutely. Like what that's actually going to look like. And I mean, people are already super dependent and they're showing like, you know, that there's addiction to phones and all these things. And I think, you know, when you look at all these technologies, social media that shows you all these positive things, it helps you maybe escape from certain things. But I feel like it's almost like we're ingrained to spend. It's one of those, like, I remember going through grad school. I mean, even my parents and they're extremely smart people. And they would tell me, you know, dress the part, dress for the job that you want. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, so now I have to wear a super expensive suit, let's say with nice shoes and, you know, potentially have a nice car and, you know, to impress the boss. So I'm having to overspend in order to potentially make more money than it's kind of that rat race thing. So like, I think sometimes we're maybe ingrained to lose and we're just kind of beating ourselves up over that. That's a great point about careers. And just going back to what we were chatting about before, that a lot of organizations have incentives to keep their especially high level individuals within their organizations retained. They want to retain them. Well, how do you retain somebody? You make it so that they need that high income consistently and that they're spending in a way that requires that. And I think for your listeners, it's important to understand that to be financially successful for the long term, you kind of have to ignore all of that. But, you know, you're absolutely right. There's definitely, depending on what career you choose, there's sort of a part that you're expected to play and how you play that can impact your financial success in the long run. So let's kind of go off that. You mentioned to be financially successful. We're not talking like, you know, invest the right way or anything. We're talking more on the behavioral side. What are some of the things that you've seen that could help someone become financially successful? I think one of the first things, and we talk a little bit about this in the book, but one of the first things is just really being aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are when it comes to financial management. In my household, no one would want me to be paying bills because I will get bored with it and I will go off and do something else. That's not a strength of mine. And understanding that from the get-go can allow you to either plan for that. So maybe I need someone else to help me or maybe my spouse can take care of that. 
or you can have, you know, again, hire outside help to do that as well, or find an app that makes sense. But understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are is really the first step to being really successful at managing your financial life. And then I would say from that, another key point is ensuring that the decisions that you're making are ones that are best for your family and your your household. And that comes back to this factor we call confidence, right? So I believe in the decisions that I make, I'm making the best ones for my family. I'm going to research them and make sure I'm knowledgeable about what I'm doing, particularly for large-scale decisions like buying a home or buying a car or something like that. You know, we find that individuals, regardless of where they are today and regardless of how much they make, if they're more confident, they believe in their abilities to make good decisions, those individuals tend to have higher net worth regardless of their age or income. I mean, that's fascinating. You said it so eloquently because I look at this with all the physicians that I am around, the ones that I work with, sometimes they lack confidence. And Mm -hmm. it might be, you know, because their financial acumen isn't that high and they're just starting out their investing careers and saving. Sometimes it's, I watch this on TV and it's all about investment returns and they kind of ignore the expense side of the equation of, let's say, your net worth and how much you save is actually Mm -hmm. more important early in your career. When I look at this, what are some of the ways that someone could increase their confidence? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you know, that's a hard one, right? Because just Mm -hmm. like you said, a lot of us don't, we're not, you know, necessarily born with, you know, financial acumen. That's something that we sort of learn over time, right? Our Mm -hmm. knowledge about how saving and spending all work together and how investing works. We know from our research that less than 20% of us get any, for example, investing advice from home. So we're getting it from somewhere or we're not. And that's a key factor really in confidence is building your knowledge, is knowing, beginning that journey of understanding, you know, what is financial management? What are my basics that I have to take care of? What's the next step? What's the next layer? That's really a key component of building confidence. And then I think also slowly but surely making, you know, small financial decisions that are well-researched, that you feel confident in, so that when you come to that larger decision, you're more confident in your own abilities to choose the right path. Mm -hmm. And part of choosing your right path I think it actually comes down to some adequate like goal planning and goal might not be the right Mm -hmm. word, but looking at what does your ideal life look like? And I know I've said this dozens of times on the show and people might be getting sick of it, but it is so important. Just understanding where is it that you want to go? I hate to use sports analogies, but like you don't just get on the tee box when you're going to play golf and just kind of swing it anywhere. Like you see a flag and you're like, I'm going to hit in that direction, whether I'm good or not, I at least know where I'm heading. And I look at in terms of your life, where do you want to go? You know, it's not so much the accounts and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm maxing out my Roth IRAs or, you know, my tax deferred accounts, whatever. It's not that. It's what I want to use the money for and working backwards. And I think that would increase confidence as well. Absolutely. I think understanding that that part of that self-awareness piece, you know, understanding your strengths and weaknesses. But like you said, also knowing where you're headed and where you're headed may be very different than what your coworker, you know, where they're headed. I think that's something to keep in mind as well, because even when you set that path and even if you know your strengths and weaknesses, you still have those influences around you. They're doing different things. They quote unquote get to, you know, go on vacations in different places. Well, their goals may be very different or 
they may not have any, you know, they may not know exactly where they're going. So I think that's important to keep in mind as well. Yeah. Most people probably don't know where they're going. Most people haven't formally written down goals or a life plan or anything. So you're looking at others, you know, your peers and what they're doing probably won't align with what you want or what you're doing. But let's just say that given the benefit of the doubt, say they've thought through this and they take a lot of trips. They might have not bought a big house and drive a older Toyota car and they spend all their excess money on travel because that's what they love and Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. their passion. Whereas you might be the type of person that's like, I want to have a big family. I want to have a big house. This is where everyone's going to come and hang out. And so, you know, I want to buy a little bit bigger house and I'll forego the travel. Well, you you know, you can have anything, but not everything, right? So, right. you know, which direction are you taking? And that's going to be important for you and your goals and for you to decide. And I even see when working with clients that sometimes spouses, actually most time, I should say spouses have differing goals. There's a lot of joint goals, but then we're all individuals. So some of us have different goals than what our spouses would like. And it's kind of that compromise. But the more you talk about it, I think the more you become confident. And then, of course, then talking about how you brought back in researching the smaller stuff. And I I know not a lot of people are super interested in finance, but no one cares more about your money than you do, right? That's right. Well, I think and one of the things you mentioned, too, just going back to working with couples or spouses, we know that most successful Americans in terms of finances, right? So if we're talking about millionaires, they tend to work closely with their spouse, not necessarily on, you know, detailed financial matters, but they know where they stand. They know what their goals and plans are jointly. So they are on the same page about financial matters. They may not have, you know, hey, I want to go to the beach when I retire and I want to go hiking when I retire. Like that vision may be a little bit different, but you know where you're headed and you're headed together and you're managing your financial life in a way that's going to allow you to meet those goals long term. Mm-hmm. I was kind of chuckling, even though no one can see me. Oh, no. <laughs> but I was chuckling because I was I can't remember which one of the physician bloggers out there is White Coat or Physician on Fire. One of them was talking like, pick your spouse wisely, because Absolutely. if you don't, like that's half your stuff. Um, <laughs> And so when you said that, I'm like, that's a real crude way of saying it, but it's, it actually is true. I would hope you come from the standpoint that you took, which was, you know, you want to work together on goals and be more financially like on the same page, but absolutely. Absolutely. So those listening right now are probably saying like three and a half million, like that's the average millionaire. I mean, we're obviously talking about older generation. Mm -hmm. I think what's the average millionaire, like 60? Yeah, the average 61. 61. Okay. Yeah. So the younger crowd that's listening to the show, right? The residents and the new attendings that are listening and they're like, well, I want to become a millionaire. I think I could. I'm hoping they say that they can because I definitely believe all of you listening can. What is your data showing for the people who are on their way to becoming a millionaire? Do you have like data on their behaviors or characteristics or traits that prove that they're going to be successful in any way? Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's one of the areas we like to focus on the most because it's really important to understand what's going to actually work for individuals that haven't made it yet. I think going back to the haters that you mentioned related to the millionaire next door, a lot of people criticized the book because, you know, it only looked at millionaires, you know, well, what happened to the people that did these same things, right? That had the same lifestyle, but yet weren't able to achieve that wealth. And so part of 
you know, kind of my my work now is looking at the behaviors that are allowing people to build wealth over time, regardless of where they are, regardless of their income or their age. And a lot of the things that we talked about earlier included. So that component of being disciplined related to finance, and we tend to call that frugality. We kind of lump a lot of things into that. But essentially, it's living below your means and having a budget and ensuring that you are spending and saving in a manner that's conducive to reaching your long-term goals. So that's a consistent finding, whether we're talking about millionaires and decamillionaires, or we're talking about individuals that are making $25,000 a year, is that behavior predicts net worth regardless of age and income. You know, some of the other things we talked about, the planning and goal setting, I think that's a great example that you brought up. Really setting aside time to plan your life and, like you said, write it down and talk about it and discuss it and also being aware of what's going on in your financial life. I have to use myself often. I'm not a doctor, but I'm a psychologist, a business psychologist, but, you know, that's not finance from a, you know, hey, I want to go in and look at my accounts and see how everything is doing. That's not on my radar. That's not something maybe I enjoy doing. But I know as a behavior, it predicts net worth. I know that individuals who are successful at managing their financial lives tend to be very aware of what's going on and not kind of keeping their head in the sand. And so that's another component as well. And then I think going back to the social piece and being influenced by what others are doing, that's really a negative when it comes to building wealth. And I think that one's the toughest, especially given the types of people that physicians often work with in that environment, that's going to be really challenging. And social media makes it even more challenging today. Yeah, I completely agree. So in the book, The Next Millionaire Next Door, which, by the way, for everyone listening, is an awesome book. I read it. Absolutely love it. And we're going to give away two free signed copies that Sarah's provided in the group. So you can check it out. The details on how to maybe get one of these free copies that's signed by her by going to financialresidency.com slash community. But Sarah, I want to ask you, because like, I hope this is a cool question, but when all the data came back that you guys were putting together, what shocked or surprised you with the data? You know, I think what surprised me the most was related to the mistakes and the willingness that a lot of these very financially successful folks were willing to share with us. So, you know, just the fact that a millionaire sat down with all the things that he or she had going on with the businesses that they were running or the responsibilities they had within their roles, which they tend to be you know, higher up within organizations if they're working within an organization, that they sat down and completed a 14-page, I think it was over 200-question survey, to me was one of the surprising pieces. I mean, just, you know, it was a very comprehensive survey, this go-around And not that the previous ones weren't, but for this day and age, for somebody to do that on paper was kind of surprising. So I don't think that I answered your question, but I certainly found that fascinating. You know, some of the other things that I think were really interesting about just the data that came back were we asked a series of questions around investing mistakes. So what are the things that you've done that you kind of regret? We asked about their favorite stocks that they bought and they're the worst performing things. So you saw a lot of For example, Enron or buying into your company's stock, those were often cited as negatives. Some of the blue chips and even spouse was listed as the best investment someone has ever made. So those were really interesting from a qualitative standpoint. 
But, you know, millionaires and individuals that are worth $3.5 million and above are saying that they've made mistakes when it comes to investing, but they continue to invest. So it's not like they're going to pull all their money out just because they made a few mistakes along the way. I think going back to that idea of becoming confident and building your confidence in these things, you know, persevering is often cited as a success factor by millionaires and they persevere regardless of what's going on. So we continue to see that. Well, they're human and everyone that's human makes mistakes. So I think that's really neat. I can't believe it was a 14 page paper. It was really long. I'm not sure I would have answered it. No, I'm kidding. That's super neat. That's how it was. I think what shocked, I guess I shouldn't use the word shocked, but what I thought Mm -hmm. was fascinating was the whole income statement affluent. And you Mm -hmm. actually specifically called out doctors as they fell into this high income producer, but with low net worth. And I think during training and just coming out of training, completely reasonable to have high income and negative net worth. Absolutely. But over time, when you're looking at these millionaires that have huge incomes and low net worth, I thought it was interesting that they were income statement affluent. Yeah, I think that continues to haunt individuals that, you know, leave a graduate program, like again, going to medical school or something like that and thinking, okay, well, I'm out and I have this huge income. It's time to show everybody how successful I am. And so instead of doing maybe the right things related to their finances, oftentimes folks that don't know any better, maybe again, their parents are telling them to look the part they go out and start spending. And I think it's so amazing that there are podcasts like yours and resources like you have to share with folks to say there's a different way and there's a better way. And here's how you need to approach it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, there's lots of great resources out there that we tried to link to and we tried to tell people about there's not one good source. I am not the only source. I know dozens you're not and dozens and dozens of sources that are amazing, yep. including some of the stuff that you guys do at Data Points, which I absolutely love. And we talked early in January of 2018 all through the Build Your Wealth questionnaire and how that influences, which people can still take. Sarah's given us access and it's still in the Facebook group if you want to go take those. Mm. Sarah, I still see people today going back and taking those, which is super That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, which is amazing that you've given that to us. So I like to end this on our curbside console here. And the question I want to ask you is, I'd like saying don't keep up with everyone's Facebook version of themselves. If physicians or spouses of physicians listening to us right now find themselves going in that direction, Do you have any tips or maybe ways for them to prevent that? You know, the first thing I think is not the simple piece, but it's the one that we maybe don't want to acknowledge is that viewing ourselves through that lens of what others are doing is going to be negative, whether it impacts your finances or your emotional and cognitive energy, right? It's maybe draining to Mm -hmm. look at what others are doing and thinking about that. I think just acknowledging it at first is a good first step for trying to solve the problem of worrying about what others are doing in terms of, you know, how they shop and spend and really live their lives. The other pieces are just to be aware of when you're making a financial decision, and and really these are more consumer driven, but when you're making a decision, stop and think about the influences that are impacting you. So not necessarily, you know, reviews and things like that, but instead, why am I making this decision? Is this something that I'm trying to use to show others maybe how successful I am? 
Am I trying to emulate someone that I think has it all together? Because we know that Facebook is highly curated, right? I'm not mm-hmm. going to show you what it looks like at my house with three kids that are sick and, you know, dinner's not made and the house looks like, you know, a bomb went off in it. I'm only going to show you those great pictures. So understanding what those influences might be and just acknowledging and thinking through why am I about to make this decision? So that's another piece as well. I think also going back to thinking through kind of how your family growing up, well, that's one of the areas that I love thinking and talking about is how your family and you are sort of socialized to make spending and saving decisions. Thinking about that in light of what you see others doing and driving and wearing, it can be useful as well, can maybe stop you from worrying about how others are consuming, if you will. I love it. I actually completely agree and think that that was a really well put answer. So, Sarah, as we kind of round out this, where can people find out about you? Where can they buy the book? Tell them about the book a little bit more if you'd like. Yeah, you can find out more about the work that we do in this area at datapoints.com. So we have a lot of resources there for individuals. We have a lot of blogs that we write about finance and psychology, kind of the intersection there. The book, it can be found really anywhere books are sold. And just as a summary, it really looks at the consistent behaviors, lifestyle, and habits that allow individuals to become financially successful. So we look back at data from previous work that my father, Tom Stanley, did back in 96 and 2001 and other studies that he conducted. But then we also follow that up with our most recent survey. So, you know, for anyone that's interested in kind of what really millionaires are doing, what individuals that are successful at financial management, how they behave and what they do, this is a book that you should check out. I completely agree. I love the book, read through it. I think it's amazing. And I want to leave everyone with this one last thought that I really loved from your book. Mm -hmm. And it was income is what you bring home today. Wealth is what you have tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sarah, thank you so much for being on. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. We are going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site wealthydoc.org titled Dad, Are We Rich? One of my favorite bloggers has done it again and posted an amazing blog that I can't wait to highlight. In it, Wealthy Doc tries to answer the question of Dad, Are We Rich? And he does it in such an interesting way by saying, yes, we are rich, at least on a world scale. Some of the data he provides in this article is eye-opening. A household wealth level of $1.36 million puts you at the 97.5 percentile in the country. I think every physician, regardless of specialty or field, can get there if they truly want it. I put you in the top 2.5%. Mind-blowing. As he says, and I quote, The bad news is $1 million isn't what it used to be. It would take $20 million dollars to match the buying power of what $1 million was a century ago. So using the 4% rule, the popular one, at $1 million would generate $40,000 per year of income before taxes, which is hardly any way to live. That income would be less than 80% of the average U.S. household income. 
And that millionaire group isn't as unique as it used to be. There's an estimated 10 million households who have a wealth level of a million dollars or more. He then states, and this also brings up the issue of the quote unquote 1%. There was some political backlash against that group, basically when the 2008 financial collapse happened. So just, just who are those 1%? The top 1% of households, assuming there's 125 million U.S. households, would represent 1.25 million households and put them at a wealth level of $4 million. So if you had $4 million using the 4% rule, that'd be $160,000 a year of income or just basically under $13,000 per month. Now, let's stop talking about millionaires and let's talk about residents. Let's say the average resident makes 60,000 bucks. Where does that put them on a world scale? Well, that puts them in the top 1% of income in the world. And I actually went on the site that he had linked inside there and was messing around. And that actually puts as a resident who makes 60,000 a year, that puts their monthly income. One month could pay an entire month's salary for 226 doctors in Kazakhstan. That's crazy. Okay, so now let's say maybe your primary care and feeling a bit poor compared to the other subspecialties. And say you earn 200,000. You're in the top 5% of earning in the US. And on a world scale, you're in the top 0.04%. So Wealthy Doc, I love the numbers. I love the stats. It was a great article and just such an interesting, unique perspective on income and net worth. Thanks for showing us how to do it. I'll make sure to link this in the show notes at financialresidency.com. Sarah was super insightful in that episode, wasn't she? Our habits do determine our future. And for you as a physician, you have it within your power to make it to the physician millionaire status. Big baller, shot caller, right? Okay, that was a lame rap reference. I get it. Back to what we learned with Sarah, let's do a quick recap. For most millionaires they've studied, their median income was 250,000 a year, but their median net worth was 3.5 million. So clearly they're taking advantage of having some higher income compared to other Americans, but they're also saving a lot of it. These millionaires are also playing a higher average emphasis on education and are satisfied with how their lives are actually going financially they don't go actually spend crazy. And in some ways, it's pretty similar to what it looked like 20 years ago. When looking back at what millionaires were like in 1996 to what they look like now, the key habits, traits, behaviors changed somewhat with time to what, what they're actually spending on their homes. Uh, there's also a higher percentage of them pursuing an undergraduate or graduate degrees. But these same behaviors that allow someone to be really good at transforming that income into wealth really haven't changed over time. And these are internal characteristics really, and they're not based on external factors like experience a recession or increased cost in education. By living a lifestyle that allows you to make good spending and savings decisions, you are still going to be financially successful in the long run, but you need to have a solid understanding of how those around you actually affect your financial decisions or behaviors. Sarah mentioned as a human tendency, we're inclined to mimic those around us who actually may seem to be more successful, hopefully. 
For physicians, this could translate in, into an influence that may be based on perception rather than what's really true. And this would be like something like seeing a colleague drive a fancy car or live in a great neighborhood when they can honestly barely afford to live that lifestyle. With social media, it can be even harder to overcome this influence because it's smack dab in our faces all the time. We talk about how marketing actually influences our financial decisions and how technology and social media is intentionally keeping us glued to it. Albeit technology is great for connection, the cons are that buying decisions are based on what is actually seen in social media. And that actually really scares me for our kids. It's almost like we're ingrained to spend and lose in the rat race, but that's why it's even more important to know what your ideal life is. And that's why I harp on this all the time in the show. Sarah and I talked about how goal planning is essential. And when you set yourself on a path where you know your strengths and you know your weaknesses, you're much more able to steer on the right financial course because you know better and you've thought it out. A lot of people aren't necessarily born with financial acumen, but physicians are extremely smart and they can increase their confidence and their financial acumen by building this knowledge and learning the basics in financial management. From that, another key point that we could take from Sarah is to make sure that you and your spouse are making the best decisions for your family, especially those large decisions. Staying on the same page keeps you on the right track. Make sound financial decisions, know where you're heading, avoid the wrong influence, keep the right company, and stay consistent. That's what I took from this show. So I hope you enjoyed it. See you on the other side of this money train. With a thousand members strong, our community has really grown and it's been an amazing journey. If you haven't already, come in and join us, please, at the community at financialresidency.com slash community. You will not regret it. Also, if you just can't get enough of me up here chatting on the mic, I have a new podcast coming out at the beginning of the year. Don't worry, financial residency is not going to go anywhere. In fact, I have some special things that are coming up on this show for the new year that I cannot wait to share with all of you. This new show will be called Money Care Specialists. My co-host, Tim Baker, which you might remember him from one of our first shows that we did here on the Financial Residency Podcast, he's a fee-only financial planner that works exclusively with pharmacists. Tim and I decided to team up for a new show that will be 100% based around case studies of healthcare professionals. You all hear about these financial topics in theory, but it's hard to see how all this can actually relate to your specific situation. And that's where this new show, Money Care Specialists, will come into play. Each week, we're gonna dive into someone's financial life, what we call a financial health assessment, and, and we're actually going to tell you how both of us as fee-only planners would approach us as if it's a real client. Now, it's dummy data and a dummy client, but we try to make it real. And we're going to tell you how we actually approach this if this was us in a planning situation. You're going to kind of see behind the scenes, a sneak peek, if you will, of what it's like to work with a planner right here for free on the show. What, what do we see as potential roadblocks? How would we problem solve the situation? And what would our recommendations be for someone that's in this situation? That's what's going to be covered in the show. And I really encourage all of you to subscribe if you want to continue increasing your financial acumen. 
I know you are going to walk away with at least one actionable tip each show that will help your financial situation. So come find us at the beginning of the year, Money Care Specialists. Next week, there's going to be four of us on the show as I discuss the benefits of a physician family community, like the Dads Married to Doctors group is one of them. And we go over some of the mistakes we've made over the years and how thankful we are for some of the lifelong relationships that we have made with other physician families. Have a great week. Cheers.